this lecture is on architecture and modernism in india post colonial mediations in form making and place making it will be in three parts it'll begin with an introduction the second part will be some case studies and the third part will be a concluding uh, section in which i will try and wrap up the arguments i'm making a uh, bit uh, note to be, uh, please note this that during the course of my talk i'll be making some references like reference 1 reference 2 which refer to footnotes that be supplied later so here goes <clears throat> the essence of working as an architect has always been to believe in one's ability to improve local living conditions whether in developed or developing societies architects are inspired by the belief that they can make a positive difference to the built environment this accounts for the passion for a profession that many including successful architects would ever provides inadequate recompense for their labor both in material terms and in public recognition lawyers and doctors they know are on greener pastures in india too it would appear at first glance that architects operate with the same set of beliefs after all they share an architectural tradition that modernism has pretty much universalized the situation in, in india however is different because when one looks around one sees ample evidence of the degraded quality of the habitat to a visitor slums and pollution both visual and environmental are the most striking manifestations of this to inhabitants it is evident in their daily experience of living and working the virtually non-existent civic services and infrastructure and the pernicious harassment of municipal authorities while architects cannot be held accountable for all these failures the truth is that there is little evidence in word or deed of indian architects being sensitive to the context in which they practice architecture is after all a product of its time and place yet so predictably focused are indian architects on the west that they remain blind to the post colonial indian conditions its problems and potentials and are therefore unable to tailor solutions to local needs with a few exceptions they have seldom attempted to define their role in the development of an architectural culture in post colonial india that that through their work would have improved the conditions of living architectural culture is building culture as a whole combining professional and specialist inputs building materials and technology related institutional mechanisms such as finance and real estate administrative and regulatory authorities and of course the users who inhabit inhabit the built environment and all these together contribute to the conception construction and maintenance of the habitable space although architects constitute only a small segment of the total architectural culture traditionally their role has been more important than of that of others in doing so in the past 
they were master builders and today they are expected to lead the team that works on any building project. However, the problem with this model in India is that architectural objectives have become narrow and self-referential to the point of being oblivious to the significant contributions of other members of the building team. This is manifest in the quality of the built buildings produced and the environment in which they exist. The central theme of my lecture is to analyze this architectural failure and to explore op the options of positive reform in the post-colonial post reality. My orientation is disciplinary and theoretical. This is necessary because I want to contest the perception commonly held by Indian architects and town planners that to be effective as professionals, it is sufficient to get things done. And because pragmatic uh, means, uh, and because of these pragmatic means, they remain wary of contentious theoretical debates that explore the subtext of how things get done. In a country like India, desperate to develop, the imperatives of doing frequently trump the importance of thinking, which is disdained as a luxury the profession cannot afford. I hope to show that the two are far from antithetical to one another, and indeed, the only way to make architecture responsive to the Indian context is to intellectually reinvigorate it. The range of issues to be examined are vast, and the prospects of dealing with them comprehensively and convincingly daunting. I have therefore restricted myself to my professional experience as an architect, urban planner, conservation professional and academic. These lectures do not deal with the whole architectural culture and focus only on the professions of architecture and town planning and their contribution to the development of the built environment. Some problems are self-evident, others not even recognize these problems. Thus. On the one hand, many will understand the need to adequately train architects to competently fulfill their professional responsibilities. This raises difficult but tangible issues to do with scarce resources and the limited infrastructure which must be deployed to produce competent professionals who must operate, operate in a globalized marketplace. It is possible to discuss, debate and formulate appropriate policies and programs to confront these tangible issues because they have already been acknowledged as professional concerns. But on the other hand, there are problems associated with less tangible issues, such as the sociology of the profession and professional knowledge in post-independence India. Not many architects would recognize this as an issue of any consequence, although it is as critical, it has a critical impact on their work. Here the problem is very basic, the inability or the unwillingness to recognize the very existence of a problem. The fact is that there are no simple or soft options available in a developing country like India. The architect in India is expected to compete for survival in a highly competitive globalized marketplace. But the country itself is still in the process of seeking to modernize its society and, and economy. For several decades after independence, policymakers attempted to provide a protective cocoon 
to enable internal developments to take place in isolation for, of, of the global uh, environment. Architects have not benefited from this policy and neither has the country. Judging by the quality of life of a majority of its inhabitants, under the circumstance, it is not easy for the architect to deliver on the ideals that ought to guide the profession. There have been little attempts to critically evaluate the works of architects and town planners and to determine from an empirical evidence the, the nature of beliefs that they have in reality guided the professions. This requires both temporal and intellectual distance. As a practicing architect and teacher who has been mediating the conditions of architectural practice in India for on a daily basis, it is difficult for me to claim objectivity in the presentation of my arguments. I am living the story of my narrative. Nevertheless, it is offered for precisely those reasons as an antidote to the more widely prevalent perspective of Indian architecture and urbanism that have been constructed, it would appear, from a totally detached and external point of view. In the absence of adequate internal analysis and discourse, external views of architecture and urbanism in India have become accepted texts. These texts have been assimilated and internalized to a degree that when architects believe in their ability to improve the conditions of the living, it is actually akin to Orwellian double-speak and double-think. As a community, architects take refuge behind the international critical acclaim that the works of some individuals have attracted. In this manner, the term critical regionalism, popularized by Kenneth Frampton to describe the works of Balakrishnan Doshi and Raj Jawal, for example, have acquired greater value to guide local practice than the volumes written on the plights of the homeless. Similarly, the encomiums lavished on works of Edwin Latiens and Lacabozier in India are used to veil the dismal conditions of the local urban environment. This disparity between the external view and the internal reality needs to be exposed, analyzed, and imaginatively addressed by architects in India in order to restore the credibility of the profession in society. Taken together, such an internal and empirical analysis of architecture and urban planning could contribute to the formulation of a more authentic theory of modern Indian architecture and urbanism. So let's look at modernism as it's understood in India. Modernism resists easy definitions. In terms of long-term concerns of architecture and urban planning, however, it refers to the, the aesthetic practices of modernization in architecture and urban planning, which evolved in Europe around the beginning of the last century. It filtered into India, initially mediated through colonial practices, but later by becoming conflated with the aspirations to modernize after independence. Its origins are therefore one of the dialectical issues in India, where each starting point leads to a different definition of modernism. With colonization, after independence, the influence of the local works of Le Corbusier and Louis Kahn, or with the more recent impact of globalization. 
each definition becomes the basis for different, often overlapping frameworks for practice. There are, of course, other frameworks which mediate practice based on contingent realities. After all, architecture serves practical ends and is subject to use. The core competence of the profession is therefore open to many interpretations, often derived from different disciplinary perspectives. Economics, sociology, culture and behavioral studies, building sciences and engineering, construction management, and in a major way, the ideas and predilections of architects themselves. Because after the advent of modernism, many consider architecture an autonomous, self-referential discipline. In the West, these multiple perspectives have contributed to a process of coherent, reflexive development that has enriched the culture of architecture there and marked both its evolution over time and the relationship with other academic disciplines. Inevitably, developments in the West have influenced artificial thinking in India, but since the process of assimilation has been episodic and its substance derivative, it has not got reflexively appropriated or internalized. Theoretical propositions have underpinned the evolution of architectural practice in the West. These do not have the same meaning or legitimacy here. And there is a consequent disjunction between cause and effect in the development of architectural practice in India. This has restricted the development of the culture of architecture and limited its dialectics to matters of image or style. This also begins to explain the nature of the built environment that exists. In this lecture, I attempted to examine the correlation between the limitations in architectural thinking and the conditions of the built environment. It seeks to understand the possibilities and limitations of developing a contemporary theory of architecture and urbanism that can mediate the quality of life in our cities. I do this by undertaking a post-colonial reading of the development of modern architecture in India in order to throw light on the broader issues defining the trajectory of modernism in architecture and urbanism I am, however, restricting my focus to only a few shopping complexes in Delhi. I will begin by explaining this analytic strategy. I am examining shopping complexes for three reasons. One, as a practicing architect, I was engaged to design one of the Delhi Development Authority's, the DDA's, shopping complexes. This exercise provided a first-hand opportunity for me to confront the issues of modernism in architecture and urban planning, with which I am concerned in this lecture. Second, I have for some time been, been interested in Walter Benjamin's Arcades Project, reference one, particularly where he looked at the glass-tin shopping streets that began appearing in mid-19th century Paris and saw them as emblematic of emergent modernism. He attempted to relate the development of the arcades and the Parisian flaneurs or strollers in a manner that provided new insights into the nature of architecture and urbanism. In a similar manner, Siegfried Gideon also related architecture to social imperatives, referring to the emergence of large multi-storied department stores in Europe 
and the US at the end of the 19th century, he attributed it as much to the demands of a new social class as to the introduction of modern steel frame construction technology, reference to. Industrialization resulted in massive urbanization and a heightened tempo of living. And the new urbanites in Europe and uh, US sought good quality but cheaper goods. Large department stores met these needs. And so he argued the new concept took root, facilitated by innovations in structural engineering, which made the construction possible. I have wondered whether a similar analysis could illuminate the understanding of architecture and urbanism in India. In other words, following Benjamin and Gideon, what is the relationship between contemporary modern architecture and the society it serves? And finally, the specificity of the focus on shopping complexes and not other types of buildings is analytically appropriate. These shopping complexes were conceived as deliberately designed public spaces in the mass plan of Delhi, which came into effect in 1962. This master plan was the first exercise after independence to comprehensively plan an existing city for future growth. In this case, the capital of the largest democracy and shopping complexes were expected to play an important role as the course of the polynucleated pattern of development envisaged in the city. Reference 3. Given the heightened significance of the master plan, it is not surprising that the design of the shopping complexes were inflected with a contextual aura, which was further enhanced by the idealism which permeated architecture and town planning in the early decades after independence. Reference 4. The attenuated architectural strategies employed by architects for the design of the shopping complexes were put to considerable test because they were intensively used public spaces and analyzing them would provide a more definitive, perhaps subaltern reading of the efficacy of the contemporary architectural intents and practices than other building types, such as museums, cultural buildings, and corporate headquarters, which are commonly cited in professional literature. And why Delhi? I practice and teach in Delhi, and so I am more familiar with developments in that city. But limiting the discussions to Delhi also serves another analytic purpose, because by focusing on a part of the whole, I am able to avoid old problems associated with the description of Indian architecture, the colonial penchant to construct pan-Indian definitions of the Indian are coalescing diverse and complex realities they confronted in India. Contemporary architects and critics have seldom strayed from the deeply rutted path laid by colonial perceptions of the Indian, and therefore they too have failed to appreciate the fact that architecture of different parts of the country are as diverse as the geography, climate and culture of the people. The unifying nomenclature Indian architecture does not do justice to this reality and in turn precludes the possibility of seeing tradition as con constantly in the making, as strenuously contested and refined by different communities. Reference 5. 
it also runs the danger of distorting facts by either investing a regional architecture with char characteristics it does not possess or co-opting interpenetrative cultural formations. Neither culture nor architecture are coterminous with the national identity. They only share the same political space. Under the circumstances, the importance of examining regional architecture as discrete entities becomes quite evident. I focus on Delhi. Let me also clarify the use of the term post-colonial in my lecture. The post-colonial in my perspective primarily emphasizes the post in the colonial. What Homi Bhava calls the ambivalence of the ongoing colonial present, reference 6. In this case, the issues relating to form making and place making in Delhi. I use the term as an objective condition of thinking and practicing my profession after colonialism. It enables me to recognize that it was not so much the heroic search for an Indian identity romanticized in literature and the local architectural imagination that has characterized post-independence architecture, but its continuing complicity with the colonial agenda. It also enables me to identify the forces of neocolonialism at work, particularly after economic liberalizations in the mid-1980s. The dramatic changes in economic policy has, of course, had widespread, widespread repercussions on all aspects of society, which have been examined by other disciplines, but not in architecture and urban planning, where it has been equally significant. Have these neo-colonial developments advanced architectural modernism, as many believe, by introducing new materials, technologies, and work cultures, or have they merely replicated familiar patterns of modernization introduced by colonialism, which relegated the role of the local architect to Indianize imported initiatives, thus emphasizing the one-way flow of ideas and ideals, reference 7. The post-colonial perspective offers a critical framework to examine these issues. It is not my intent here to discuss the problems of causation and historical trajectory, but by using the prism of the post-colonial perspective, refract what gets left out in the process. The raw material of indigeneity, the empirical substance of experience and practicality waiting to be shaped into theoretical self-consciousness. Reference 8. It is said that post-colonial studies have enriched various disciplines in the West by enabling academics there to include the hitherto submerged and occluded voices from the non-Western world. Reference 9. I have similar expectations when I focus on the occluded indigenous realities which have mediated architecture and urbanism in the making in my world to enrich architectural studies here. The grand narratives of the architectures of India which have been attempted so far have failed to recognize the significance of the contingent nature of the routine practice and have therefore been unable to plumb the depths of local architectural culture. Post-colonial theorists have written of culture as being negotiated within the enunciative present 
of the discourse, reference 10. Architecture 2 is being constantly reconstituted from within by the contingent local reality. It is my thesis that this process is of greater significance in determining the nature of modernism than the influence of external agencies. But this has seldom been noticed, let alone acknowledged in literature. That is, with the exception of Gautam Bhatia, who has used wit and humor to incisively describe the emergence of new hybrid architecture and bring it into the public attention. As a deeply committed modernist, however, even he only sees pathos, not puissance, in these developments. Reference 11. It is also the occlusion of such empirical substance of experience and practicality that I equate with what post-colonial theoreticians have referred to as the mystifying amnesia of the colonial aftermath. Reference 12. Post-colonial studies therefore provides the lens to place in context the meaning and significance of architecture and urbanism in the making and bring it into focus the, uh, the enunciative present in the present day discourse of architecture and urbanism. That's end of section one. I will present section two in a separate section.